The Treasury Department's Bureau of the Fiscal Service is testing out ways to streamline grant payments through blockchain. The Bureau is partnering with the National Science Foundation to help reduce the reporting burden for grant recipients while improving transparency around federal spending. For an update on that work, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Acting Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Financial Innovation and Transformation, Adam Goldberg. First, though, you'll hear from a supervisory program manager in that same office, Craig Fisher. Around 2019, we started this proof of concept where we started looking at whether or not blockchain technology could increase the transparency, the visibility of grant funding, uh, particularly when grant funding would move from the prime grant recipient down to the subrecipient. When that occurs today, that funding transaction is very opaque and we don't see those transactions. Because we don't see it, we asked those grant recipients to do a lot of reporting for us. So we want to understand again if blockchain could actually help this out. And getting to your actual particular question of how would this actually streamline the payments and federal grants and provide a lot more transparency, the magic is really in this thing called what's tokenization. And I'm just going to sort of explain tokenization in a really easy to understand example, which is if you think about a casino, and really what tokenization is, is you're just representing something of value. It is not the thing of value, but you are representing that thing of value. And if you use the example of like a casino, for example, where you put money and they give you chips and you use those chips to play games, then when you leave, you have to redeem those chips to get back cash because it has those chips have no value outside of that casino. That is effectively tokenization. You're representing those dollars and you can use those chips to play. But imagine in our blockchain scenario and what we did, imagine those chips though, carrying and retaining that history of every game it's ever played, every person it's ever touched. That history, that additional transparency, that's effectively what we're doing with grant payments. We are tokenizing those grant payments, combining it with all this grant information And as this information moves from the federal agency to the prime recipient to the subrecipient, we have a lot more transparency that we're turning into less reporting for those grant recipients. As far as this current point in time with where the Bureau is with blockchain, what sorts of unresolved questions around blockchain is the Bureau looking to address as part of its recent task order? What we found in that first phase of our proof of concept is that Blockchain does result in less reporting. I think we found that. We, we tested this with our users. Customer experience is something that was really important to us to make sure that we were scratching the itch for the end users. But what we haven't done at this point is we haven't sort of balanced out that benefit with all of the other things that we have to sort of understand. So we don't, we're doing what's called sort of a business case right now to better understand the alternatives to what we could do for using blockchain, but better understand the cost benefit when you look at this in totality. Something else that we're doing is going back to that casino example that I, that I gave you, we've effectively created the mechanisms to turn those grants payments into tokens. We haven't created the mechanisms yet to turn those tokens back into cash. 
So in this next phase, we're going to be looking to connect our blockchain application to agencies, financial management systems so that we can connect all the plumbing pieces that are necessary for actually making that federal payment. The other thing we're doing is we largely have been working with the university community through the National Science Foundation as our end user group. But we understand that that's just a portion of the entire grant payment landscape. So we're including other stakeholders like the HHS, the new grants, QSMO, to better understand all the different grant payment types so that we can put together a little bit better understanding if this application is just meant for those universities or if it has a little bit broader application. And then lastly, I just want to mention that when we're looking at building blockchain applications on a cross-government application, that hasn't been done. So there really is no perspective at this point what a blockchain infrastructure looks like for the federal government. We want to kind of take that first step and add a perspective on what something could look like in this more of this decentralized blockchain ecosystem. So those are some of the four things that we're doing to move this forward. And if we kind of find that this is favorable, what we want to do is sort of transition this proof of concept into an actual pilot where we run different payment scenarios through here to further test whether or not blockchain really is scratching an itch for our customers or not. I guess to maybe sum it up another way, you know, you're really trying to go at this with two big goals here. One, reducing the overall reporting burden on grant recipients and also making sure the Bureau has all of the information, all of the data it needs to make sure that everyone's really compliant with those grants. That's correct. I think there's a lot of internal controls elements that, that we're sort of building into the blockchain. I would even add a third one to that, Jory, as well, is that what we're trying to understand on these cross-agency blockchain applications, whatever we find out, whether it's a supply chain use case, a payment use case, intergov use case, whatever that blockchain use case might be, those infrastructure questions that we're looking at right now are going to be able to be copy and pasted for other use cases across the federal government. So I think what we're doing here isn't necessarily particular to just grant payments. It's going to have a larger impact on the community for folks that are interested in moving more towards blockchain-based applications. Yeah, and that's definitely worth highlighting there. You guys are setting the roadmap for other agencies to get this done and even to go one step further, cross-agency collaboration on this. That seems to be you know, a pretty significant goal. Absolutely. And I think governance is going to be one of those things that's going to have to change. We're moving from central systems to a decentralized system. So we have questions of how do we do change control? How do we do funding? That's going to be very different. So you're absolutely right. Building that community of folks and having not only just NSF and HHS, Grants, QSMO, and others at the table to help us figure this all out is going to be really instrumental for moving blockchain forward in the federal government. Got it. And I know that blockchain is just one piece of the puzzle for the innovation portfolio at the Bureau. Would love to hear more about some of the key features of the Bureau's new website, the Treasury Financial Experience. Let's hear a little bit more about what this particular website would do and how it would perhaps meet some of the changing needs and demands from the public. In addition to kind of being this big repository of data that we're trying to be more transparent about, we're also a big repository of policies, procedures, and instructions that we give to federal agencies that they have to follow. In fact, we have a document it's called the Treasury Financial Manual. It's a thousand pages of a PDF, and that PDF is broken into 50 or more different chapters. So if you were someone trying to go in and find uh, instructions for something, you don't have an easy way to navigate through all that guidance, and you're probably 
kind of looking at something that may have appeared as if it was printed in like 1973. Um, so the Treasury financial experience is really intended to upgrade that customer experience first through kind of a, a more modern user interface, but second, really allowing the customer to drive how it accesses the guidance that it's looking for. And that's a huge shift. We've done about 75% of the thousand pages that we've brought over into this more modern user-centric design for organizations, for agencies to look at. That's Adam Goldberg, the Acting Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Financial Innovation and Transformation, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You also heard from Supervisory Program Manager Craig Fisher. Subscribe to The Federal Drive on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but 
uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and 
reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, w- WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and- agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.